Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this group of people who love you and love your word. As a teacher, Father, there's nothing more encouraging than people who want to learn and want to be a part of the study. So I thank you, Father, for that. I ask you, Father, that we would uh, come to you tonight under your guidance, under your uh, tutelage, Father, under your care and, and instruction. I pray that you'd be uh, explaining things to us in a new and better way. I ask, Father, that you'd give us a heart to see ourselves in what we learn because we know, Father, it's not just for knowledge's sake that we're here. You call us into your word, Father, so that we might be more like you. And that process of change, Father, is about walking away from the old and uh, embracing the new. I ask for that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, thank you guys for being here. We're in 2 Samuel, and we're getting ready to start chapter, or actually get back into chapter three. So let's jump right back in to the intrigue that we were involved in at the end of chapter two into chapter three, where Abner, the commander of Ishbosheth's forces, has gone from the north to the south, and he's decided to throw his support behind David in an attempt to save himself. He took the bold step earlier of having uh, bedded down one of the king's concubines, one of Saul's uh, concubines, and when Ishbosheth found out, he confronted Abner, and Ab- you remember Abner responded indignantly and defensively and in the end, he ended up succeeding in intimidating Ishbosheth, at least for the time being. But he knows his position in advising the king is not going to hold for very much longer. It's going to be in jeopardy eventually. So he sends word to David in the south that he is ready to switch sides and bring the other tribes with him. And he says, I will bring my loyalty to you. I'll bring the loyalty of the other 12 tribes to you. And if you remember, David is a little cautious with that offer at first. He says, prove to me that you can do what you're claiming you can do. And the demand that David makes is that uh, Abner would deliver David's first wife, Abigail. And that would be his proof that he has the authority and the influence he claims to have in the north. And as we saw at the end of last week, Abner agrees and makes it happen. So that leads us now to verse 17 in chapter 3, where... Abner is now ready to return, having completed the deal with Abigail, and follow forward now in the plan. And he begins by visiting the elders of the northern tribes, the tribes of the north that he controls. That's in 2 Samuel 3.17. says, Now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And in addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. Then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, Let me arise and gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you, that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So after the deal with Abigail, Abner comes back uh, to the north. He reaches out to all the elders of Israel. That is now the northern tribes we're talking about. And I assume he's doing this without Ishbosheth knowing that it's happening at this point. He's there to convince them to shift their allegiance to David, as he promised, and he gives them an argument for doing so. It's a primarily a twofold argument. First, Abner reminds them that David was, after all, your first choice. So apparently, the northern tribes had been inclined at the beginning to throw their support behind David, 
rather than Ishbosheth when this division happened after Saul's death. And that kind of makes sense because David was a hero in Israel for years. I mean, he dominated uh, as Israel's chief of the army uh, in battles over the Philistines. And in the process, he would earn the respect of the people of Israel. He was the guy that used to go out and win every battle. And moreover, everyone knows that the prophet Samuel had anointed him as the successor for Saul. So everybody knew he was supposed to be king. Everybody had a respect for what he could do in leadership position. And so when Saul died, many, if not all, of the tribes of the north were prepared to follow David until Abner intervened in favor of Ishbosheth. And that makes this meeting kind of ironic, doesn't it? Here is now Abner trying to win them back to where they once were except for him. And he's working basically to undo what he previously did. And that's his first argument. His first argument is, I'm just telling you to go back to where you were. Second argument he makes is, David was God's anointed warrior in defeat of the Philistines. And uh, in contrast to Saul, Saul never really managed to do much in terms of defeating Philistines. He had some early victories, but then as he went sideways, so did his military success. But David was singularly successful and uh, always made a big impact with that. So Abner's saying to these men in the north, you know, do this for your own best interests. Follow David, he can defeat our enemies. And if you remember at the beginning of this chapter, we're told in verse one that the house of David is growing steadily stronger while the house of Ishbosheth was weakening. So these guys could probably just see the writing on the wall at this point, right? Notice uh, in verse 19, uh, we're told specifically that Abner also addresses the elders of Benjamin because remember, Saul's family is from Benjamin. He's a Benjamite. So it would be especially important to win that tribe over from their allegiance to Saul and Saul's family. And as you get to the end of this whole section, it's apparent that diplomacy is working because the elders agree that it's better to support David than to stay where they are with Ishbosheth. And I think it's nothing but pragmatic on their part at this point. They just do the math. They don't want to be on the losing side. If David keeps gaining strength and Ishbosheth eventually gets conquered, you don't want to be on the side that failed to recognize who was going to be your new king. It's better late than never in this case. Just come to the winning side before the game's over. And so they make a decision, I think, of self-preservation here while they still have time. And the elders decide to send a delegation with Abner to David in Hebron. And in that delegation, they'll strike a covenant. Now, a covenant, for those of you who, who, we've all heard the term, but I don't know how many of you may be familiar with the biblical view of it, Uh, especially if you've ever been in a church where they make you sign a, quote, covenant to join the church, right? If that's your exposure, then you probably have a very uh, uninformed or, or incomplete view of what a covenant is. Biblically speaking, a covenant is always a lifelong commitment punishable by death if it's broken. That's what a covenant is. Good thing you didn't sign that covenant at your last church. It is formally established through a blood sacrifice. So you'd have to have animal sacrifice at the moment that you uh, establish a covenant. In fact, the Hebrew word for establishing a covenant is the same word as cut. You cut a covenant because the idea is that you have to kill an animal and you have to have blood establishing the covenant. Now, if you've gone to the trouble of cutting an animal open, then it only makes sense that you have a feast. So covenants also included a meal. So you have a covenant meal to com- conclude and, and uh, enjoy the, the moment. And so in verse 20, you see the men sitting down with David to eat, and that's part of this covenant ceremony. Now, what was promised in that covenant? Well, simply put, David is promising to protect and, and uh, guard them. In other words, be their protector as their king, and they're promising to give him their allegiance. 
So at the conclusion of the meal, David sends Abner away, we're told, in peace. And that is an important phrase in this part of the story because what that means is David has now entered into a covenant, not just with the northern tribes, but with this man particularly, with Abner. That means David is now obligated to protect Abner, his life and his honor, and to do so in exchange for Abner's loyalty to David. Effectively, listen to what David's just done. He has effectively promised he will not harm the commander of his enemy's army. That's a head-scratching moment for people who are around David at this moment. Who pledges to protect the enemy's military leader? And that's exactly what the leader of David's military force asks David when he finds out. Verse 22. Behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had been sent away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away, and he has already gone? You know, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to you to deceive you and to learn of your going out and coming in and to find out all that you were doing. All right, so Joab is not happy. Now, you remember this guy, right? He was one of those three brothers that we studied a chapter or so back who gathered together with Abner at that pool with the intent to establish some kind of negotiated peace. Remember, the whole thing just broke down and in the ensuing melee, there was that battle and they eventually had Abner on the run. And then one of the three brothers chased him, uh, and as uh, the brother caught up to Abner, Abner killed him, remember? That's Joab's brother, and Joab was one of the other two brothers. So now, learning that the man who killed Asahel, which was his brother, is now come into the camp of David and been allowed to leave without anyone taking revenge for Joab's brother's death, he's incensed. He's frustrated. He's frustrated that he missed the chance to kill this guy and that no one else took advantage of the opportunity to do it for him or at least hold on to the guy until Joab got back. And I think worst of all, he learns that David's entered into a covenant with this man, that there's now an agreement between David and Abner of peace. And so Joab goes to David. He says, you should not have done this. He was just trying to deceive you. He's just spying on you while he's down here. He's trying to learn the strength of your forces. You're going and you're coming and all the rest. Now, it's hard to tell if that's Joab's true concern or if he's just making a case for killing Abner in revenge. Uh, Beside his anger here for Abner, that is for killing uh, uh, Asahel, I think he's also a little concerned about losing his job because Joab is in the same position for David that Abner is for Ishbosheth. And it's logical to assume that if Abner has entered into a covenant with David, part of that agreement probably included Abner having a position of high authority in the government to follow. I mean, he's brokering the peace. He's delivering the northern tribes to David. That was, you know, deserving of something. And Joab's doing the math, and he's looking at the situation, and he's saying, there's not room for both of us. So in addition to his desire for revenge, he's got a job security problem. So he decides to take matters into his own hands. Verse 26 When Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sarah, but David did not know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the middle of the gate to speak with him privately, 
And there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. All right, well, simple revenge. Joab just sends messengers to Abner. Abner's on his way back to the north, right, to deliver the tribes to David. And he gets a note. Some messenger says, you're wanted back in Hebron. So Abner, thinking the king has summoned him, goes back. And as he reaches Hebron, remember cities have walls, walls have gates. Gates are multi-chambered rooms, basically, in the center of the wall. The wall's a very thick thing. can be as thick as this whole center section here. So you, in, you walk in one side of the gate, you've got a center section of the wall. While he's in the gate, that's where Joab waits. He pulls him aside, and then he, he murders him. He kills him with a sword. And that's his revenge for what Abner did to Joab's brother. Now, as he does this, Joab puts the southern kingdom and David's rule in great jeopardy. Remember, David just entered into a covenant of peace with Abner. Covenants are only breakable by death. And now David's commander has killed Abner, which would appear to be in violation of the covenant. That is, David could be now accused of violating his oath to Abner vis-a-vis Joab, sending his man after Joab. And then you have the bigger problem of the northern tribes. What are they going to think at this point when the guy that's trying to woo them into this new alliance kills the guy that was brokering that alliance. So David's chance to be king of Israel is now suddenly in jeopardy because of the selfish actions of this one commander. And the conflict here between David and Joab illustrates the challenge that David faces in trying to govern the Israel that he is now inheriting at this stage of their history. Historically, this is an Israel that did what was right in its own eyes. You probably know that phrase. It's well known out of the book of Judges, which historically speaking, Judges is only a a few decades back in history from where we are right here. But if you go even further back than that, even in the time of Moses, Israel was stiff-necked, the Bible says, rebellious, prone to wandering, and generally unwilling to obey the Lord's commandments. They came out of Egypt worshiping idols, we were told. Once in the land, they just came under the influence of the Canaanite idolatry. And so naturally, when someone kills a man's brother, the only response that the people understand is that you go after that person with a revenge killing. That's the way Israel thought. That's the way they lived. David is inheriting this culture. So clearly the people's ways are not God's ways. This is not God's desire. But that's also why they struggle to understand David because remember, David is a man after God's own heart, which is a phrase that says he had this supernatural gift to understand God's will and desire in circumstances when natural man, our thinking, would go a different direction. And so David, in the story that you see in, in both 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, David is continually, not always, but commonly doing the thing that other people wouldn't do. And often it would be the thing God would want. And in this case, that's where David goes as well. He makes peace with his enemy. Now, of course, this is one of the primary ways King David pictures our Lord Christ in the fact that Jesus made peace with his enemies as a matter of his grace. Jesus forgives those who hate him, who hate God. And he does so purely as an act of mercy, not with any kind of quid pro quo expectation. So Joab, in this case, is like the people. He reflects the people of Israel. That is, you hurt me, I hurt you. You kill my brother, I kill you. It's just the way things work. David looks at the situation and says, I'm not interested in that. 
I'm interested in doing God's will. God's will is that the nation would be united and I would be their king, and whatever means gets us there is the right means. So now it's time to see how David's gonna respond to this egregious affront to his authority and his power, and here again, he does the unexpected. Verse 28. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on his father's house. And may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge or who is a leper or who takes hold of a distaff or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. All right, so... David's doing something you wouldn't have expected here either. That is, he does not retaliate against Joab in the way that most would have expected under those circumstances. Now, unlike Joab's uh, revenge killing, David could have taken Joab's life. I mean, the the penalty under the law for murder is death. There's, There's no cause for what Joab did. It wasn't justice. And David could have taken Joab's life, but he doesn't do it. What he does do is he distances himself from Joab's actions, and that, of course, is an absolute necessity. He's got to make clear to the northern tribes, and even to his own tribe, for that matter, that he did not go back on his word. This is not an action he condoned, not an action he set forth. This is, Ab- this is a, a Joab doing a renegade, doing his own thing. And to do that, what he has to do is punish Joab and then go to an effort to demonstrate he had no heart in it. So in punishing Joab, he does it, but not in the expected way. Instead of taking his head, uh, in fact, it's interesting, David's son Solomon eventually does do that. Solomon kills Joab and does so in part for this revenge killing. So here again, David is a unique character in God's economy. Not even his son had that same heart as God gave David. Nonetheless, David doesn't take this route. He lets Joab live, And he asked the Lord instead to bring Joab's family to ruin one through one calamity or another. Either they're going to die violently, they're going to live in poverty, they're going to suffer chronic disease like leprosy, or as he says, they'll take hold of a distaff, and that's a a spindle for weaving cloth. So in other words, they're either going to do the work of widows, which means they'll be widows, or they're going to do the work of slavery like a man in slavery would do that kind of work. It's a harsh curse. And its effect is to eventually cause the line of Joab to waste away, like a a tree dying. So David apparently wanted to indict the whole family of Joab because you're told here in verse 30 as we conclude this section that it wasn't just Joab in the gate. His brother joined him in this murder, in uh, avenging Asahel. So the family acted against the king's authority, and that's why the entire family is going to pay this severe price. But this curse that he asks God to bring to Joab's family, it's much more devastating than just killing Joab outright. And it's also more purposeful. And if you're wondering why would God do this, well, it's because it creates a lasting testimony, a lasting witness. As long as Joab's family is around, people in Israel are going to be able to look at their circumstances and remember Joab's sin. And by that testimony, Joab's folly is remembered, David's righteousness is vindicated, the Lord's power is seen in the outcome. David is confident that the Lord can deal a better form of justice in this regard to Joab than he could if he took matters into his own hands and just killed the guy. And that's David acting after the Lord's own heart. Even in this sense of a harsh punishment, this is still keeping in God's will in the heart of God because this is exactly how God deals out revenge to his enemies. 
Exactly. It's how the Lord turns evil into good. He doesn't just kill people, if you will. I mean, everyone's gonna die. You can't blame God for death. That's where it started with Adam, not God. But my point is, in other words, God has programmed the, the course of history to accommodate the death of Adam and make use of it. You don't, you know, that God's not out there killing people for, for pleasure. The point is, sin is the cause of death. Sin entered the world under Adam. Now God is dealing with it. But when God deals with his enemies, his interest is not in wiping somebody out as if they never existed. His interest is in turning evil to good. And often what that requires is that there, is that there be a testimony or a witness out of that bad person's situation, out of the punishment, out of the consequence. You know, I like to say that you can be a witness to God one of two ways. You know, you can either be a good kind or a bad kind, but he's gonna use your life one way or the other. And that's what Paul means when he tells us in Romans, in chapter 12, to leave room for the wrath or the revenge of God when confronting our enemies or our adversaries. That is, appeal to the Lord for protection, as David did often. Let God decide how it's gonna be handled, how and when. And it's better as you do that for three reasons, which David illustrates here. First, you remain innocent from the blood, if you will, of the person that you're concerned about, whether you, not to suggest you would kill them, but in the sense of you do nothing in retribution. You have no guilt on your hands for how you handle that situation. David has no guilt on his hands for Joab's situation. He did nothing specific against the man. He put it in the Lord's hands. Secondly, the Lord's style of punishment will always be better than whatever we can come up with because he has an infinitely greater number of options at his disposal than we did and he will do it with perfect justice dialed in for that person in their situation and for what God wants to get out of it. We don't have that kind of precision, certainly. Thirdly, the Lord can ultimately turn that situation to good in ways that we can't perhaps even anticipate, maybe even leading that person to repent and ultimately become his instead, that we might see good come out for that one person, never mind someone else. That principle, this idea that God can do better than we can in this area of retribution, revenge, if you want to call it that, dealing with our enemies, that lies at the heart of the Christian call to forgive our enemies. And these things are not antithetical. Forgiving and letting God deal with the retribution is not antithetical. They're not opposite. We don't take revenge because we leave room for God to decide how much of that is needed in their case, what form it should take, and to what good outcome will it arrive. That's why we leave God to do it. Every moment of your life is supposed to be a gospel-advancing moment, including moments of conflict. And you rob God of the opportunity to use a conflict moment to advance the gospel when you take revenge into your own hands. Stay out of it, let God handle it, and then you're innocent, God gets a better opportunity to do what he does well, and something good can come out of that opportunity. David's willingness to leave revenge to the Lord in Joab's case, and in fact, in Abner's case, was an example of David having a heart after God's own heart. And as such, it also confused and frustrated a lot of people who were around David much of his life in power. They did not understand this instinct that David had because they did not understand the Lord's heart. And so men like Joab couldn't get it when David said, I'd rather extend mercy to Abner than try to take revenge for your brother. Ironically, that same heart of mercy that made Joab so angry at David came around to be an advantage for Joab when David chose not to kill him for what he did to Abner. Remember that. So by the curse, David makes clear that this entire doing was Joab's alone, so everyone sees that David's not pleased with Joab. And then secondly, 
He's going to go to the next step of showing the people that this was not his idea. He conducts an elaborate state funeral for his enemy's commanding officer. Chapter 3, verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the bier. Thus they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. Then the king chanted a lament for Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, May God do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, just as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. Then the king said to his servants, Do you know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. All right, so just to put in, a, in context what's happening here, it's like a presidential funeral for a former president. That's what's happening here. It's an opportunity for everyone to publicly mourn somebody in a very visible way. They tear their clothes, sackcloth, all of the symbols of mourning are adopted, and then they have a funeral procession to the burial site where they're gonna bury him. David himself walking behind the funeral bier, that's like a cart that you put the body on. David following it in a big procession in front of all the people, and they reach the gravesite in Hebron, and David weeps loudly and publicly for Abner and all the people at the funeral, I think in part because if the king cries, you cry. If the king's happy, you can be happy. So he's crying, everyone's loudly proclaiming Abner's death, and then David gives the eulogy for, for Abner, and he does it in a chant. We don't necessarily hear all of it, but this little section we're given lamenting is, he says, you died like a fool dies at the hands of criminals rather than as the war hero that you should be. That's the implication. So it's not the result of conflict. You weren't a prisoner of war, your hands bound and all that. You just got run over by a fool, by, by a criminal. And then in verse 35, we learn David has been fasting probably since Abner died and until the funeral was complete. And it's after the funeral now, people look at David, they go, man, you don't look good, you should eat. And he says, I won't even eat until the end of the day. He, he fills out the day and doesn't eat until sundown. All of that devotion and mourning of Abner, it, we're told it strikes the people as admirable, as praiseworthy. They, they identify with what David's doing and they take note of it. Verse 36, it pleases them just as everything he did, what it refers to, everything is referring to everything in this situation. Everything David did concerning Abner, it's pleasing them. And that entire episode was designed by David to convince everyone of his innocence and to distance himself from Joab's actions. It's a public state funeral designed to honor Abner as a state hero in the hope of convincing everyone, particularly the northern tribes, that David was not a part of this act. And in verse 36, we hear that it worked. The people say in verse 37, the the writers tell us that the people knew from that day forward David was not responsible. He pulled victory out of the jaws of defeat and he saved his kingdom from a disastrous start. And his mourning, it may have been a little over the top, it was a little bit you know, for effect, but it wasn't insincere. I'm not saying he didn't also wish that it hadn't happened. You see in verse 38, he says, this is a prince and a great man uh, who has fallen. 
And Abner was certainly that. I mean, he's a prince in the literal sense. He's a man of great authority working directly under kings. And having opposed David, yes, but he had just thrown his support behind David. And if he had been able to live and be in David's court as an advisor to David, he could have been very powerful and very useful as a counselor to a brand new king. So David's lost something here of some value. Finally, he says in verse 39, David says, I'm weak. I think that's probably a reference to the fact that he has been fasting, but it might also be a bit of weariness just to the whole uh, waiting and struggling to get the throne and dealing with now these internal stresses of Joab and his brother. He says, these guys are just too difficult for me, meaning they are headstrong. They are unwilling to fall in line. They're just not easy to work with. And he repeats, I'll just wait on the Lord to deal with these guys. Ironically, his, his personal weakness which he expresses here and how we see him also at times in the running from Saul for 10 years in the desert. That personal weakness is what put David in a position time and time again to be depending on the Lord. He had no choice. He was in the desert with nothing. All right, Lord, take care of me. He's in situations like this when he can barely even stand. He goes, I'll just let God take care of him. I can't deal with him anymore. And in the long run, that dependence, because of his weakness, became his strength. David's dependence on God was one of the key strategic strengths that David had. Now we move into chapter four. As we do, chapter four is a bit of a transitionary chapter because it plants seeds that become important lines of the story going forward. And that's why it's not a very long chapter. Verse one. Now, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel was disturbed. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other one was Rahab, the sons of Ramon, the, the uh, Beorothite of the sons of Benjamin, for uh, Beoroth is also considered part of Benjamin, and the Beorothites fled to Gitthaim and have been aliens there until this day. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in a hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rahab and Banah departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heat of the day while he was taking his midday nap, midday rest. They came to the middle of the house as if to get wheat and they struck him in the belly. And Rahab and Banah, his brother, escaped. Now when they came into the house as he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of the Arba all night. All right, so there's a lot of going on here, several lines of conversation kind of blending together. Let's separate them out. Back in the north, all right, so we have Abner dead, Abner buried, David doing the whole funeral thing. Now the word finally gets back to the north, probably doesn't take very long, that Abner's died. And probably the whole story is now out in the open about not just the fact that Abner has been killed. But remember, Ishbosheth didn't even know Abner was down there negotiating this whole transfer of power. There's no indication that Ishbosheth had any idea that this uh, conspiracy to take him out of power was underway. So he hears not only is his commander dead, but gee, all of my tribes had already pledged their support to David. And even worse, he's heard that they have entered into a covenant. So naturally, all of this news takes away Ishbosheth's courage, which simply means this guy is afraid, he's panicked, because not only is his kingdom short-lived, so is his life. You know, deposed kings typically don't live very long, and he knows that. 
And in fact, the obstacles to David taking over all Israel, they're falling like dominoes right now. Think about it. Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. Saul's other two sons are dead. Now the commander of the northern forces is dead. And so there are only two possible heirs to Saul's throne standing in the way of David having an unchallenged you know, path to power. One is Isbosheth still. The other now is a grandson of Saul, Jonathan's son, called Mephibosheth. This is when we first hear of him. He's briefly introduced in verse 4. He is a grandson, so he's technically an, uh, an heir to the throne as well, if you were to pro- prop up the Saul family dynasty. We learn, though, that he was crippled from an early age. His nurse was caring for him while Saul and Jonathan were up fighting in the north against the Philistines. When they got killed in that battle, word gets back, and the nurse, realizing that the family might be in jeopardy now if the king is dead, who knows who's going to take power, so she tries to flee quickly to save Mephibosheth's life. She drops him. Who, who hasn't been there? And, no, you all haven't done that too? Don't tell my kids. Um, and the drop apparently breaks a limb or something, and the body of the child now is permanently lame. We learn about Mephibosheth a lot more in chapter 9. He becomes a central part of the story in chapter 9. But his point for being introduced here is that the art, this, this chapter is really going through all the things that are still standing in David's way. And those two things are these two men, Mephibosheth being one of them. Now, a lame boy is no threat to David. No one's going to put a lame man in power. He can't lead the army. He has no respect among his peers. So in mentioning him here and then also mentioning his history, the writer is taking him out of the story for the time being because he's no longer a concern. And that leaves just Ishbosheth. And that's why he is so troubled. He realizes it's him or David at this point. Verse two, we now hear of a new couple of characters, two brothers. They decide to force this issue. This one obstacle to David, they feel, is their opportunity to do something to earn David's respect. They're two military commanders. Now, these guys have a lot of self-interest in this move because, remember, they're leading the military for David's enemy, just as Abner was. And so if everything's about to turn David's way, and it certainly looks like that, They don't want to be on the wrong side either. So they decide if we take action here, we can put ourselves on the right side of history with David. Bana and Rechab from the tribe of Benjamin, they live in a place called Beeroth, which is a town outside the territory of Benjamin, and yet these men are of the tribe of Benjamin. And as the story here told you, historically Benjamin considered that city part of their territory, even though it was outside of their territory. Just a little parenthetical historical comment. Verse 5 they go to Ishbosheth in the heat of the day. Now, in that time of, well, actually, it's still this way today in many cases. In that time of the day, uh, in the Middle East, it gets hot. It gets hot enough that, you know, without air conditioning and all the things we take for granted, you don't want to be up and out working in the middle of the heat of the day. So it became customary that when the heat got really bad, you went inside or got in, got in a shaded area where there's breeze blowing and you took a nap, just waited it out. And then after the, the cooler evening air started to blow in, you'd get up again, you'd pick up where you left off and work some more hours of the day. And that was customary. Everybody took their afternoon siesta. So the heat, making everyone tired and putting them in bed, gave opportunity for these men. They come into the house of Ishbosheth. Now, why are they even able to enter? Well, because they're commanders of the troops. They would be expected to have access. So they come in, supposedly going into the house for their supply of wheat. They find him, they attack him with a knife. You get this repeating of the story here in verse 7, but that's just to add the extra detail that when they killed him, they also took his head off. 
And they escape with the man's head. Now, why do you take the guy's head? Well, because they don't have a phone with a camera. They can't do the selfie with him dead on the bed. So they have to, I mean, that would have been the effect, right? They got to prove that they killed him. And no better way, and you can't take his foot. Whose foot is that? I don't know whose foot that is. You take his head. That's his ID. So they cut his head off. I mean, it's, you know, thank goodness for, you're all thinking, boy, I'm glad we have phones now. I would hate to have to do that every time I had to show somebody. Anyway, they escaped taking the man's head through the Arba. Arba is just a term, in, uh, geographic term for the Jordan River Valley. So they're coming from, remember the town they're in is just over the Jordan River. And so they just travel down the Jordan River Valley. Then they come up the Judean hillside into Hebron. Verse 8. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given my Lord the king vengeance this day on Saul and his descendants. So these guys apparently didn't get the word about how David views such things. Uh, they come to him, bring in the head of Ishbosheth, verse 8. They say, Hey, guess what we got for you? We took care of the problem, we avenged you. Uh, for what Saul had did to you. And, and you notice they say, we avenge you, not just for you know, the chance to take over. They're saying, for all the years that Saul did what he did to you, we now have avenged that. Once again, that's how the world thinks. That's how Israel thought. Tit for tat. This is how it works, right? They saw Saul's chasing of David and attacking of David and persecuting of David as revenge-worthy, and as such, they believed that David would see it that way too, and when they killed you know, this man, it would make David happy. Remember, though, we know already David did not view Saul as an enemy. Uh, he viewed Saul as the Lord's anointed leader. David honored that. David, by the way, made a covenant with Jonathan before Jonathan died, promising that when he became king, he would protect the house of Saul, not just Jonathan, but all of Saul's relatives. And he did that out of love for Jonathan. And again, not something most people in David's position would have done. Here again, he does what men don't expect. He has a heart to do what God would want. And uh, in line of those promises, David's not gonna take anybody's life, not anyone who, who, who is a descendant of Saul. He'd be breaking his covenant again. Uh, moreover, David understood instinctively that what time all that time that passed, all that persecution that happened was in God's economy. God was doing something in that. Didn't mean he liked it, but he understood at least at some point in the process, God is bringing me through it. If you want proof of that, uh, survey the Psalms that David wrote, and if you can, read them in chronological order for, for the time that David was in the, in the desert. And you can see the guy changing on the paper. You can see him going from, woe is me, defeat my enemies, to I rest in you, and I, I know you will take care of me, and I see your hand in my life. And it, it's just it, more complaining, and then later more praise. It's just David just transitions on the pages of Psalms in front of you as he goes through that experience. Never mind the fact that if he hadn't been there for 10 years, you wouldn't have the Psalms for the most part. So David was honor-bound to Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth by a covenant that David took seriously. And these men don't know that, or they don't see that, they don't understand that. They make the same mistake that that Amalekite made in chapter 1. They assume David wants revenge, so here again, David teaches them the same lesson that he taught the Amalekite. Verse nine, David answered Rahab and Banah, his brother, sons of Ramon the Beherathite, and said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news, 
How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Then David commanded the young men and killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. So it's self-explanatory. David just says, you guessed wrong. I don't need rogues like you seeking to avenge me. And his argument as he opens that is, as the Lord lives who has redeemed my life from all distress. You see that comment? He's saying, the Lord has my back. I don't need your help. What a great way to see life. The Lord has all that I need, has, all my, has my back. I don't need you to do anything for me. I don't need you to put in that, that, that I don't need you to cut that corner for me in this process at my, you know, with, with getting hired for that job. I don't need you to you know, bend that rule for me and how I get my tax refund. I don't need you to do those special favors for me. The Lord's got my back. And he's declaring here that the Lord has protected David from, from Saul for over a decade and now seven years against Ishbosheth. And forgetting, of course, David had plenty of chances to revenge himself when he was with Saul in the first place. No, he has purposely declined to attack or harm Saul or Ishbosheth because of his covenant through Jonathan, and instead has respected the Lord's choices in the delays and in the process that the Lord has taken him through, not second guessing why the Lord has taken so long to do what he's told him he's going to do. That is a man after God's own heart once more. A man who looks past the moment And I have a phrase for this that's not in the scripture, but this is a man who looks past the moment trying to understand what God is doing. I call that having eyes for eternity. Trying to see past your circumstances, trying to see uh, beyond the way the world sees something, trying to understand your situation as if God is showing you the big picture. And you know, if you take a little effort in your walk with Christ, you can see that picture more than you think. I mean, it's not too hard. It's not that hard to rationalize if you want to call it that why a little suffering is in your advantage, why a waiting might be better for you, why it's okay that your enemy has an upper hand in your life right now. If nothing else, you're learning patience. There's always a way to understand the value of it if you're inclined to ask that question. David knew the Lord had promised him the throne, and he had no doubt in that promise. So if he promised it, it's gonna happen. I don't need to force it. Moreover, David trusted that there must have been a good purpose in God holding it back for at least the time being. And I think in hindsight, after all those years running from Saul in the desert and all the maturity and all the understanding he developed in that, I think David had come to realize from time and again when he thought he was on the verge of forcing something and didn't, then God showed up in a way that he wasn't expecting. Conversely, in the few cases, particularly early on, when David was running and forcing things, if you want to read about that, it's back in 1 Samuel. Times like when he pretended to be uh, literally a, an idiot, mentally disturbed in order to hide out among the Philistines. I mean, just embarrassing stuff that he did. Things he regretted. When he did that, he later realized, I didn't need to do that. And he, he moved away from that. He wrestled with his flesh and he gained important skills when he was out in the, in the desert. He learned about prayer and the importance of appealing to God. He learned patience and resourcefulness and he learned how to lead a pretty ragtag group of men as well. And as I mentioned earlier, he used the time productively writing the Psalms, most of them, and learning to rely on the Lord. So he's got all of that hindsight now working for him and he realizes at moments like this, it's more important For me, speaking as David, it's more important for me to keep my word in these covenants that he's established and to wait on God 
than it is to force an outcome even if I feel like I have the opportunity in the moment, even if I can taste it, even if it's just one decision away, I'd rather wait. So ironically, these men, as they're confronted with David's reaction and how upset he is, they are claiming to gain David's revenge for David against Saul, and in the end, what David ends up doing is gaining Saul's revenge against them. And in verse 10, David reminds these men, this is exactly what I did to the last guy who came here with this same offer. That was his reward, this will be your reward. So David asks them, shouldn't you have expected me to do the same? Now at that moment, he has them killed, and he has their hands and their feet removed, and their bodies hung at a pool in Hebron. Now interestingly, the battle between north and south began, this whole, this whole process of moving David to strength and moving Ishbosheth to weakness started because there was that negotiation conducted around a pool, and now the conflict ends, effectively, with David's enemies hanging by a pool. There's a nice kind of circular feeling to the whole story at this point. The bodies are a message, obviously. The message is, don't help me. <laughs> David's saying, I don't need your help. Don't be avenging my name anymore. And uh, D- David is, is honor-bound to respect the Lord's anointed, whoever that might be. It's also sending a message about what it means to kill any king. And David now being one, that's not a bad message to get out there. So Ishbosheth buried with Abner in the grave as a sign of honor. So even as David's enemies fall, his path to the throne now is cleared. Uh, even in that last bit uh, with Ishbosheth now dead, he continues to respect the timing of the Lord in all of these things. And every time he resists the urge to force the outcome that he wants, he is rewarded for that act by the Lord. The Lord blesses him for his patience. That's a story in 1 Samuel. It's continuing here. That is, the more David seeks to keep his word to the house of Saul, the more the Lord acts in keeping with his word to David that he will raise him up as a king. Now, here's a simple way to understand that relationship that David is illustrating here. The more David does the right thing, the more opportunity he gives the Lord to bless David for doing so. I'm not saying this was a quid pro quo kind of situation. I'm not saying that David wouldn't have become king if he didn't obey the Lord. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there is an easy way to follow the Lord and there's a hard way. And when you obey the word of the Lord and keep your promises and live according to godliness, doing the kinds of things you see in David's life, that's following the Lord closely. Uh, That is the easy way. That's like a child holding his or her father's hand, standing nearby, walking. It's a gentle process. It's easy. It builds the relationship. I mean, that's the metaphor, right? Walking with the Lord. But there's a hard way. You get to the same place. It's just not as pleasant. You, you live a worldly life. Uh, you, you live disobediently. You have ungodly aspects to your life that you that you hold on to. And you're not walking side by side with the father there so, so much now. You're, 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 you're no less a child of the father. You know, you're not less his, but you've strayed from him in that sense. You've left his company. He didn't walk away from you. You're walking away from him in that sense, putting distance between you. And if you want to think of it in the, in the sense of the analogy, you've left the position of standing by him holding his hand, and instead he's dragging you on a leash. You're still going where he wants you to go. You know, God's sovereignty isn't going to be trumped by your disobedience, thank God. But he's going to make that journey a whole lot less comfortable. You go from gentle to painful, from blessing to discipline, in a loving way, in the same way a parent does with their own child. That's the hard way to follow the Lord. You still get to where he wants, you just don't like the trip. 
And when you take the easy way of obedience, yielding, and so on, and, and, and living as much as you can in the righteousness of the commandments of the Lord, he is in a position to bless you even as he keeps his promises to you. And that's what the testimony of David's life is. If you look at David, he was on a one-way trip to the throne. Nothing was gonna change that. But he could be an, a fool drooling in Philistia, or he could be sitting safely somewhere in a cave waiting for the Lord to deliver him on a day that the Lord appointed. Neither one is, is necessarily the one you would choose, but there's certainly one that's better than the other. He is willing to wait knowing that God is in control. He, and that's, I think, the story of every Christian's life at some point. At some point, you start to figure that out. At some point, usually it's better if you figure it out early, but at some point, you figure out God is directing your life. He's directing it for spiritual purpose, building you up through experiences. You didn't lose your job because something went wrong. You lost your job because that was what God planned for you on that day from the foundations of the earth. And the health crisis you know and the, the family issues you know and the other things, those things were in the plan from day one. Why were they in the plan? Because he looked down the corridors of time and saw who you were and who he wanted you to be and the difference between those two was filled by the gap of that experience. Now you can take advantage of that experience and that's walking with the Lord and you get something good out of it and you move forward and he blesses you or you can resist the work of God in your life through that trial and that's you on a leash getting dragged like some pets I used to have. You know, you just take them for a drag. And they get where they're gonna go one way or the other. So you have an easy way and a hard way. Here's the difference. The difference between the easy way and the hard way is pride versus humility. Trust versus control. David lived in an age when strong men took control. They forced outcomes. They killed people who stood in their way. But David was a man after God's own heart. God does not work that way. Think about it for a minute. Does the Lord destroy his enemies? He can and he will, but he also saves a lot of them in his mercy. That is, God's heart isn't only about one. He has the capacity to bring mercy and grace to his enemies. The Lord doesn't break his promises. He keeps his word for generations and generations. The Lord does not seek to just please men. He acts for his own glory. David was a man who thought in similar ways. And that's what you're seeing reflected in these decisions. He didn't need to validate his authority and his power by taking other men by force. I've always said that to, to guys. If you have to force someone to follow you, if you have to remind them that you're the authority figure, you are not. You have no authority. David didn't destroy those who opposed him because he knew that his true authority didn't have to fear their opposition. God had his back. David kept his promises because he knew if he... Uh, protected his honor, God would protect him under all circumstances. Not necessarily protect him in the sense of not have anything bad happen to him, but protect him to the outcomes that were promised. And David often didn't do what others expected of him because he wasn't that concerned with what people thought. He was concerned with what God wanted. David's patient, godly approach has brought him now to this moment at the end of chapter four in God's timing and most importantly with his honor intact. He didn't need to grasp for the throne that was promised him. He just needed to wait for God to give it to him. So that time has come. We're just gonna do a few verses in chapter five to finish tonight. It's just uh, such a nice turning point. It gives us a nice launch for next week. 2 Samuel 5, 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel and you will be a ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David 
made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron. Then they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So Ishbosheth, obviously being gone, no one's left to challenge David. All the elders of the tribes come to David in Hebron. They pledge their support and their allegiance. They declare, first, David, you are our flesh and bone. And that is an important statement because he's, acknowledging, he's being acknowledged as king of all tribes, and not just in the sense that we have no one else, in the sense that you are Jew, in the terminology we would use today, Hebrew in that time, Israelite. You are a Hebrew, we are all Hebrews. In a sta- it's a statement to the effect that we are one people under your leadership, and it's a kind of temporary suspension of the north-south divide, of this the tribal distinction that had emerged up to this point. David is reuniting the nation after seven years of that rivalry, and even before that. Secondly, they say David has been recognized as the true shepherd, even when Saul was in power. That is, David was the one leading Israel in and out. He was the one getting them through battle successfully, defeating their foes. So what they're saying is, we, I, this is, I think, a bit self-serving, but it's absolutely true. They're saying, we knew you were always in charge. We knew you were always the guy. Because David was the shepherd when Saul was there. This is the first time in the Bible, from Genesis to this point, that a human being is called the shepherd of people. So David's right to rule Israel comes down to three basic qualifications. These are their qualifications. These are what the people say to David that that makes them believe he is qualified to be their king. His human kinship, his meritorious service to God's people, and his divine election as their shepherd. David met those qualifications in human terms, and Christ perfects them. Christ was born of a man. He is our flesh and bone also. That allows him to take our place in God's plan of redemption, to be our intercessor. Secondly, Christ rendered meritorious service to God's people, living a perfect life, righteously so, in our place, and then giving himself up for uh, our sake at death. And thirdly, he is the divinely appointed good shepherd, the Messiah, the only name by which we may be saved. So here again, David pictures Christ. The three qualifications that the people declare he has to be king are exactly the three that allows Christ to be our savior. One, of course, is earthly, one is spiritual. So once again, David entered into a covenant with all the elders of Israel, and he is anointed king of Israel. In fact, you notice in verse three, it calls him King David. First time that phrase is used, King David. This year is 1004 BC, and if you're counting, it's the third time David's been anointed king. First time by prophet Samuel when he was a young boy. Second time by the elders of Judah at the beginning of that seven-year period after Saul died. Now for the third time by the entire nation after Ishbosheth dies. And we're told David is now 30. And you may know this, but that's an age that the Bible considers the ideal minimum age for a person to assume a leadership position governing God's people. In fact, 30 is the age that several notable Bible characters are at when they assume their position of authority for the first time. Joseph was 30 when he assumed power in uh, Egypt. Uh, Priests could not begin working in the tabernacle until they were 30. Uh, Saul was 30 when he began to rule Israel. Of course, Jesus was 30 when he began his earthly ministry. So that number seems to be the number God focuses on as the beginning for someone. Why would God pick that number? Well, I'll give you at least two reasons that come to my mind. It's an age that, generally speaking, moves a person beyond youthful ignorance and arrogance. Common experience, everybody thought, you know, every kid starts out thinking they know everything. Um, 
And yet, at the same time, it's young enough that they're still teachable so that the experiences they gain and apply over the years will make them a better leader as they go on. Pick someone who's too late in life, they're not gonna learn much. Pick someone too early in life, they're not looking to learn. And they think they already know it all. And there's a, there's a bit of a nice window in there when you can take somebody and make the best use of them. That's my, that's my theory, anyway. Finally, and lastly for the night, David served a total of 40 years as king, which includes the seven that he had just over Judah. Now that number is also very interesting. We know the number 40 is the number of testing or, or trial, but it's also the length of time that a, not, a number of notable uh, leaders led in their ministry. Moses led in the desert for 40 years, Saul ruled for 40 years, David rules for 40 years, Solomon rules for 40 years, exactly. Now besides any specific meaning that the numbers 30 or 40 have, I think just the fact that these numbers are so repetitive and specific are there to simply remind us of one thing. God is in control of these men's lives. He raised them up at a certain age. It's not random. It didn't just work out that way. They weren't gonna become king at 29. They weren't gonna become king at 31. God is in that much of a control of everyone's life. What happens to you happens when God appoints it. And the fact that they ruled for only 40 years and exactly 40 years and no less is, again, a reflection of God saying, I put you there, I put you in, I can take you out. You know, I, I set the day you start, I set the day you end. And the timing of David's ascent to the throne, the length of his service like the other kings around him, it's all a testimony to God's sovereignty. Seeing God in control to the degree that he truly is gives the believer confidence to acknowledge that control in your life. If he can do this to these people, he's doing the same for you. And to live with the same patience and humility that drove David, I believe, rests on a confident understanding of the sovereignty of God. And David's story tells us that. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Father, for uh, David's example of humility, for his heart to seek after your desire, his willingness to wait, So many things I can identify with in David's life, not from having modeled my life on his father, but from having made the mistakes that he didn't. I ask, Father, for all of our sakes that we would think more carefully about your sovereign will in our life, the signs you give us every day that you are taking care of things, that even the trials are appointed, Father, for good purpose, and that, like David, we would be patient through them so that we may gain the benefit of them. And as he wrote Psalms in the middle of his despair, Father, let us not despise the product of our time in trial. Whether that might be tears, whether it might be growth of one kind or another, new relationships, whatever it is you use that time for, Father, we praise you for it now. Thank you for our study tonight and for our opportunity to gather. We pray this would continue, Father, as well. Bring us back next week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.